Okay, we are back for more or less a bonus edition of the Bibliotheques podcast. Cody, how are you? I'm doing just fine, Paul. Thanks for having us today. Who do we have with us today? We have your mother, Keely Voida. Hi, Mom. Hey. <laughs> How's it going? It's going great. I'm so, so glad that you were able to come because Cody and I reading these books, first of all, we haven't read them, like we haven't scratched the amount of times that you've read them. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, us going through is kind of just scratching the surface as to what is actually going on in the books. But then in addition to that, it's kind of nice just getting a different perspective on the actual text, just because, you know, we're 20 something year old dudes and yeah. like hearing it from somebody who is, you know, very religious, first of all, that's something that we don't really touch on very much when we talk about this, mm -hmm. but there's a religious aspect to this, these books that I think is pretty prominent. Mm -hmm. um, so hearing that from you would be awesome. Um, but then in addition, I mean, you're also a woman and yeah. you are older than us. So I think just that varied perspective is going to be really nice. Plus, you have been able to really meditate on the text for a lot longer than we have. Yeah. This podcast mostly serves as us recapping everything in more of a narrative sense, doing more uh, literature aspect themes. So getting that really deep meditative uh, quality to the text is going to be a nice change of pace as well. All right. So let's just start off first. I, I just wanted to ask, OK, how and when did you start reading the books? What was it that got you into it in the first place? Did somebody recommend it to you? What what spurred this? Well, I'm not exactly sure how I pulled them off the shelf, but it always helps uh, when you want to inspire reading is to have books around, right? And uh, your dad, Paul, had these, and I believe they might have been a gift from his sister, and so your aunt Liz, um, but they were on the shelf in our house and. Uh, it's kind of interesting, but I don't, it's, I don't really want to go into detail, but I was having a little bit of a rough time. Yeah. And, um, I started reading them basically as a means of escape, you know? Um, and it's funny because my, a book club that I'm in right now called the well-read mom, um, great we just, name, by the way. yeah, it is, isn't it? And it's a great book club. It's international. And oh, uh, really, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. It started here in Minnesota, but it's so popular. It's grown. Wow. Um, but well-read mom just read a, an essay by Tolkien uh, called On Fairy, or it has a couple of different names, but that's one of them. Tree and Leaf is another way to refer to it. And he talks about fairy stories um, being stories that help people with escape. Mm -hmm. And when people are critical of that, like escapists, that's a problem. He says, why wouldn't a prisoner want to escape from their bars? You know, um, we all need this. And on a lighter note, it's better than drinking. <laughs> <It's true. Yeah. laughs> so, um, self-medication. Yeah. yeah you know? for sure. Yeah. And, um, I say that, you know, as a joke, but seriously, when things are tough and you can pick up a book and immerse yourself in this amazingly beautiful world, it can get you through some tough times. What is it exactly? Do you think that, that helps you the most with that, with that escape? Cause I mean, when people turn to drinking or drugs, it's literally going to like a different state of mind. Yeah. Like chemically speaking. True. With reading, it's not really there, but the way I see it, it's, it's almost more physical for me. Yeah. Where, I mean, you're transported, not necessarily like literally physically, but you go somewhere else. Is that kind of what you've experienced or is it something else for you? No, it, it really is. And I was just thinking about, so uh, I'm in, a, I'm in three book clubs right now. One of them is uh, an awesome racial equity book club where mm -hmm. we're reading really important texts to help people grow in their understanding of, of race. And I love that book club. And then I'm in a, a book club called Inklings, which is reading Lord of the Rings right now with students at my work at my school and then um, Well-Read Mom. So I'm rereading uh, Fellowship right now with my students. And 
there's this great line when um, it talks about how Frodo, when Frodo is in Lorien and he, he walks through Lorien and he is immersed in this experience. And because of that immersion, he carries it with him always. Mm -hmm. So to immerse yourself in something that is so noble, um, one of my favorite virtues is courage. Mm -hmm. And you know that very well, Paul, because of the Voida movie canon, right? Right, They all involve brave people, right? right? And, um, And courage is so important in Lord of the Rings. And so you have people acting with virtue, with courage, uh, with selflessness, with self-sacrifice. So you immerse yourself in that and then you carry that with you um, even when you're not reading it. Do you and have, it helps. Do you have the line handy? Yeah, I can find it in a second. Why don't you guys talk a minute? Well, <laughs> you know what's actually funny? It's it's funny that you bring up that part of uh, Frodo in Lothlorien because it's it, you say that you're in multiple book clubs trying to experience this as a community. Yeah. And Frodo actually does find that similar community feeling with Aragorn at the end of the Lothlorien chapter. I have the thing right here. Just, at the hill's foot, Frodo found Aragorn standing still and silent as a tree, but in his hand was a small golden bloom of Eleanor, and a light was in his eyes. He was wrapped in some fair memory, and as Frodo looked at him, he knew that he beheld things that they once had been in the same place. So, and at the end of that, it's just the end of the Lothlorien chapter, and Basically, Frodo and Aragorn share a moment and go off hand in hand to go find the others. And I think that's pretty much what you're talking about with that experience. It is. And that line, I absolutely want committed to memory. Yeah. Because there's not. And it's funny because, Paul, you texted me when you finished that chapter and you said, I have never read anything more beautiful. I know. (laughs) And it just gives you chills, doesn't it? I couldn't help it. Like I, I was reading down here in my room just all alone. I don't think anybody else was in the house. And it was just a moment where it's like just speechless like you you put the book down you close it and you're like it's a weird feeling where i got to the end of that chapter and you want the story to keep going so you want to keep reading but at the same time it's weird because i was like i might not have to read anything ever again yes <laughs> yeah. just kind of like oh my god and i just had to, i had to text you so yeah that was that was great yeah actually thank you for the time i found it so it's just a little before what you read cody Though he walked and breathed and about him living leaves and flowers were stirred by the same cool wind as fanned his fra- face Frodo felt that he was in a timeless land that did not fade or change or fall into forgetfulness. When he had gone and passed again into the outer world, still Frodo, the wanderer from the Shire, would walk there upon the grass among Eleanor and Nifredel in fair Lothlorien. And so that's kind of what it is. You experience it and then you take it. And I was thinking too, and you're talking about um, faith and lots of people, wherever they are in their faith journey, have discovered meditation, right? And it's in lots of world religions is this ability to go deep into your, well, Teresa of Avila, like the inner castle, interior castle, or different people call it different things. But I think that that was a great explanation of what it is where you take that time to go deep within. And then when you're in the outer world, you're still aware of it, you know, yeah. you carry it with you. So, yeah. So that's just kind of a basic overview of why you read Lord of the Rings. Yeah. See, I, and I love that because so much of, I think, when you when you're talking to anybody who has never read the books before and especially people who have not read the books but have seen the movies mm-hmm. you i feel like it gets kind of like i don't know like the sense is it's narrowed into like just another fantasy like fantasy mm-hmm. um novel and to me lord of the rings is so much more than just like like people think like oh elves and orcs and goblins mm-hmm. and things like that like it's not really for me it's like okay Maybe not, but there is a way to actually read 
even if it's not for you, it is for me. I'm a dork like that, like that kind of stuff. But like, even if it's not for you, there's a way to read through that to the stuff that you're talking about. Like, there's mm-hmm. more to this than just that. There's also a really cool aspect that when Tolkien wrote these, um, fantasy sci-fi was just coming to the forefront of actually published literature. Like he wrote The Hobbit in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And that's when a lot of really influential sci-fi also gets written at the same time. He wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy in the 50s. Um, and when you're reading these books, it's like when you watch a very old movie and you see what would now be considered a fantasy quote unquote trope. Mm-hmm. But back when he was writing these, he was essentially just laying the blueprint down for much of the fantasy elements of, of decades to come. He was laying the groundwork for it mm-hmm. with like his text and the way that he was doing it. So when you're reading these, it's almost like you're literally stepping back in time to a literature standpoint when like the building blocks of how very unique fantasy storytelling or I'm sorry, storytelling was going about, which I always appreciate too, reading these books. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So with that, I think I'd just like to get a little bit more in depth as far as kind of what you're thinking for the way I define the book is in three stages. Um, and so just going over that first stage, which in summary is really just, you get an introduction to the hobbits, especially if you haven't read the hobbit, you get an introduction to the Shire and everything that's going on there. Uh, Bilbo's birthday, Bilbo leaves, you get this very, very kind of dark introduction to this powerful ring that this whole story is based around. Mm -hmm. Frodo ends up leaving the Shire. He and three of his Hobbit friends leave. They get into a few adventures with one of our favorite characters, Tom Bombadil. Uh, And then they end up making their way to Bree. They run into a ranger named Strider who then kind of takes them under his wing and guides them away from these scary um, kind of wraith, ring wraith, black riders that have been chasing them since the Shire. Frodo gets stabbed and gets mortally wounded. Um, and then they end up meeting up with one of our favorite characters, Glorfindel, good old Glorfy, who shows up on a horse, throws Frodo on it, and Frodo races to Rivendell away from the ring wraith as they get swept into the river. Um, and that's kind of the first phase of the book. So starting with that first little bit, I just want to hear your basic takeaway from the Shire and what's going on there. Why is it the way it is? What is Tolkien doing there? What's going on? Well, I'm not sure if I can answer that question in a comprehensive way, but I can definitely address, you know, later in the story, Frodo will rush at this huge orc and say the Shire. Yeah. And you really do. There's different references to the Shire throughout where these are the roots for the hobbits. Mm -hmm. And it's what um, it's home and it's it's who they are and it it's what gives them their courage. You know, it's like everyone needs that that home base that is comfortable and full of family and friends and food and just to then go be that adventurer, you know. Sure. So that's one of the things that the Shire does. Another thing that is a very important theme for Tolkien, and it's so interesting because he shares it with C.S. Lewis, Lewis and Tolkien really dislike machines. Have you noticed this? <laughs> and it'll go. There's, there's lots of themes, especially when Gandalf looks over at the top of the tower in Isengard and detests the machine of industry. The, yeah, the industry. Tearing, right? Exactly. The fire of industry yeah. tearing mm-hmm. into the forest. And uh, it's, it's an interesting theme. Um, I just read the uh, space trilogy that C.S. Lewis wrote. And again, where you're uh, overly... Uh, mechanizing things and um, you know, it pollutes Mm -hmm. and it robs people of jobs and, and the Shire is, is there's none of this there. You know, it's this protected place. We come to find out in almost cryptic ways that it has been actually protected by the Rangers Mm -hmm. um, that have been um, 
riding around the borders of the Shire, keeping these people safe, these hobbits safe. But um, it's it's an idyllic place for Tolkien. So I'm, I was thinking about this mostly when we were reading The Hobbit. And I, I think that The Hobbit is great in, a, in some ways. Of, first of all, the writing in The Hobbit compared to The Lord of the Rings is much more elementary. It's, mm-hmm. It reads like a child's book. It's, it's a really easy read. And I think a lot of the themes are much more obvious in The Hobbit than they are in Lord of the Rings. Especially when it comes to the Shire, what I was thinking about is it seems like Tolkien is asking the reader the entire time. And I think to some degree kind of brings it into Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship as well. It's just kind of like what really matters in life because you have this you have this odd kind of relationship between in The Hobbit, Bilbo and the dwarves and thinking like, all Bilbo wants to do is just sit at home, eat and smoke, basically. And the dwarves are after reclaiming their land mostly for, I mean, there's good reason for going back. It's home, obviously, but also wanting that treasure and everything that's under the mountain. And then you get that full swing over to the complete evil side of things where you get smog under the mountain, just hoarding gold and stuff. And so to me, it was like, okay, when you look at the Shire, what does it represent? And it's, I I couldn't really tell if what Tolkien was saying that this life of luxury that the hobbits are somewhat living is what should be desired most. Or if it's something that's like, this is good. You have to branch off from it. But I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. I think that Tolkien, especially in the Hobbit really describes so many different value judgments of the different um, beings all around middle earth at the time, because he also sees like, what does Bjorn value? Right. Um, Bjorn, if you'll remember one of our favorite characters from the Hobbits, a um, guy who can change into the shape of a bear and lives in the woods. He values, um, his solitary lifestyle. He values nature above mm-hmm. all else. Mm-hmm. Um, for someone who is a skilled warrior and predator, is a full vegetarian. Yeah. Like does not harm living beings if he does not. If it, as long as it's not in defense of those living beings. So it, it, Tolkien, the whole there's nothing there, wrong with ringing a few goblin decks. No, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, but that isn't. That's extended also into the um, into um, fellowship. The fellowship because it shows you that what you thought was important can actually change because Bilbo in the beginning of the fellowship desires, he wants that adventure back. He had a taste of it with his great adventure. He brought it back. And then over time, he's just yearning to have some fun outside of the Shire again. And he doesn't really, the only person he can confide with is Frodo. All he hates, all of his relatives and all he wants is to see the elves in the mountains again. So it kind of shows that what you thought you valued can change with events in your life. And that's perfectly fine. But a lot of people are, especially hobbits are more than welcome to just reside to what they think that they like and what is definitely comfortable. No one describes comfort better than Tolkien. Mm-hmm. We've described That's true. no one can visually create an image of coziness in your mind like he can. But I think the point of the Hobbit and especially the beginning of the fellowship is that just because it's incredible and just because it's great and comfortable doesn't mean it's what you want necessarily. Yeah. I think, you know, you're the, uh, Tolkien is, is a very strong Catholic. So his, you know, there's lines in the gospel about not, um, your possessiveness around these material things is a real issue, right? And one of my favorite lines with uh, the, in the house of Tom Bombadil, it is perfect. When Frodo says, um, Frodo looked, he's talking uh, to Goldberry and he says, he is, as you, she says, he is, as you have seen him, he is the master of wood, water, and hill. And then Frodo says, then all this strange land belongs to him. Mm-hmm. And she says, no, indeed. She answered and her smile faded. That would indeed be a burden, she added in a low voice as if to herself. And so I think that while the 
hobbits are so entrenched in the Shire. It informs that it basically they're one really with the Shire that we do get the sense that the more, the ones who are the, you know, like Frodo's the best hobbit in the Shire, we're told. Um, they can hold it lightly enough that it gives them their roots and informs who they are, but it's not something that they grasp. Mm -hmm. um, that comfort, which is a great point, um, is not something that they have to hold on to. If they need to leave it to save it, then they can do that, you know? So it's, it's an interesting paradox. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. You can, I think it's one thing is like the, like the square rectangle rule. It's like, you can always, um, find comfort and satisfaction, but comfort itself is not something that can satisfy you fully. Right. Yeah. The, the other thing that I wanted to say about just this part of the book is you get a more in depth, I think kind of description of, um, of Frodo himself in the Hobbit. It's different because Bilbo is essentially forced onto this journey or <laughs> Gandalf is kind of like, get on, like mm -hmm. get after those guys. And so Bilbo is very reluctant to go. And Frodo is definitely reluctant to leave the Shire also. But <clears throat> I think there's more of this understanding of almost duty mm -hmm. that we don't get in The Hobbit that we do in The Fellowship that I think is is really, really interesting about Frodo as a character. That there are several times, whether it's right when he's leaving the Shire or in Rivendell later, where he basically is just like, I don't want to do this at all. Mm -hmm but I have to. And so I'm going to do it. Right. And I, it's, it's something that I don't think you see in any other character necessarily in this book where other people do things for duty, but there's more of a, um, I don't know, like a bravado about mm -hmm. it uh, yeah. that, that you don't see with Frodo. Now, of course, and I, I agree with you, but uh, the other thing though is Frodo's duty is a much higher duty than what Bilbo was true. asked to do. True. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's very true. Okay, so getting out of the Shire then, um, they make their way. And I think the next kind of big thing that I would really want to cover is how did the ring rates hit you when you read the books? Well, they're, they're terrifying. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had mentioned my uh, interest in growing and understanding of race and those issues. And, and they're called the Black Riders, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting is they're wraiths. So the reason they're called black riders is because they're wearing black cloaks. clothing, right? Yeah, right. Uh, cloaks and stuff. But um, they're absolutely terrifying. And uh, and I love lines like they there was a call and Frodo says there were words. You know, it's like this yeah. long wail. And Frodo says, I'm pretty sure there were words in that. And yeah. so it, he does a lot to really inspire fear. Yeah. And the the there's a scene that I, it's it's so much more terrifying in the books than I think you can ever even do on screen just because there's so much you can kind of describe in writing that asking somebody to act is just hard to do. But there's this scene where this ring wraith gets off his horse and is literally crawling towards them. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And one thing that Cody and I talked a lot about um, is there are moments in this book where things are kind of creepy so like the Barrow Downs and like there's there's things that are almost like sp spooky, spooky, like in the Halloween sense almost. And then there are like mortally terrifying and descriptions. And it's not the first time that the, the hobbits are like introduced to the supernatural before this. Like the ring itself is supernatural and Gandalf's pure existence is obviously magical and supernatural. But the rates are the first time where there's an extremity and there's a relentlessness to the the enemy, quote unquote's supernatural power and that ruthlessness and that just pure will to find them is a lot of what made it scary to me. Mm -hmm. Like there's the themes that there will always be 
an agent of the enemy who his only job is to find and bring harm to you. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like Barrow Whites, they kind of do their own thing. You went to where they live. That's why you messed up. And Tom Bombadil is there to help you. But the ring rates are on your tail the whole time. Yeah. And willing to hurt anyone in their way to find you as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Any other thoughts on ring rates, mom? Um, no, I, I think it's very cool how they're on horses now and later something else is going to be right. another mode of transportation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They upgrade for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the hobbits eventually make their way. Um, I do want to talk to you about the willingness of Frodo's friends, though, to join him on this. And the fact that they knew that Frodo was up to something from the beginning and they're essentially just like essentially their refusal to let Frodo go on alone, mm -hmm. um, which is a common theme going forward. But what does that say to you about specifically, I would just say, yeah, Mary Pippin and Sam as just friends of Frodo? Because there's we don't hear a lot of them after this first phase of the book. Sam definitely more than the other two. But they're, I would say, lost more to just kind of the overall story. We get bits and pieces, but this is a very telling part where we don't it focuses in on their character really closely that I don't think we get as much of later on in the book well a few things about the hobbits um they they represent they're sort of uh you know they're later called princes among the hobbits and they actually are Merry and Pippin both and you'll notice they're referred to as mister which is mm. uh you know a it's a title of honor Sam doesn't get called mister oh yeah um so Mary and Pippin are sort of that, uh, in some ways, important members of their houses, and they represent the best hmm. of their houses. And uh, because Pippin is a took, he is more, a little more adventurous. Mary is a little more, you've noticed, you know, Mary is the one who prepares the house in Crick Hollow and is a little more level-headed through the whole story. More of a traditional hobbit, maybe. Well, yes, but again, being their, um, kind of the best of their houses, um, they are they already sh show more courage, I think, than your average hobbit. Um, and, but they're, you're right. Their friendship with Frodo and fellowship, you know, the first book being called Fellowship is is no accident. And mm -hmm. I, I love the fact, it, tying to the movies, you know, that old story about Orlando Bloom getting that that tattoo, you know, it, it must've impacted the people who worked on the film to do that. And mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, yeah. I think they all got that tattoo yeah, somewhere on their body. I think yeah. they did. Yeah. And um, so- Friendship is a huge piece and kind of even the quote you read, uh, Cody, about Aragorn and, and Frodo and the friendship and really the love that is forming between these people uh, is so important. And um, so, yeah, it's what motivates them. Sam is his loyalty to Frodo is in many ways the thing that drives the narrative. Yeah. Um, if without Sam, we wouldn't have a happy ending. And um, and I think Marion Pippin, what we get is these kernels of who they're going to become right. so we see both of them growing into much more important people as the story progresses yeah yeah i, I i'm glad you brought up first of all i'm glad you brought up the fellowship portion because i remember talking to cody about this piece of the book and at this point for a few chapters it was just frodo and sam kind of journeying together just at the very very beginning of the book and then Mary and Pippin kind of break it to frodo that we know what you're doing and we're coming with you and i remember that both of our takeaway was just kind of like Okay, at, up until this point, it has been the partnership of the ring, and now we're adding these two guys in, and it's this is now like, okay, we're getting the gang together now, finally. This is the fellowship here starting. I also like that you brought up that um, 
Mary and Pippin are referred to as Mister because because that Sam is easily like the most loyal, and I would I would say like as Mary and Pippin so easily left their really nice positions in the Shire, uh, Sam is throughout it very nervous about a lot of it, but he is just as brave, and it shows that even in the Shire, like that bravery and that companionship transcends whatever arbitrary class assignments that they might have followed themselves in, like. Sam being a gardener, not necessarily living the life of luxury that a Baggins or a Took would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, Sam is full of surprises, right? Through the whole thing. So he's pulling out this poetry. Um, Sam is, Sam's love for the elves, Mm -hmm. his, you know, that he's motivated by going to see the elves and uh, is a sign of kind of what you're saying about Sam is transcending what we, one might assume. Mm -hmm. Um, Is, Is it significant that Sam's a gardener? I, I maybe, you know, I, I think there's a lot of gardening down in the Shire. <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with you. But the fact that, I mean, we we're talking a little bit, um, I mean, we we're talking about Bjorn or yeah, Bjorn um, and his kind of attachment to nature, Tom Bombadil and his kind of, you know, his attachment to nature. That's a huge theme in the book about just the living woods, you know, mm-hmm. all, all of this stuff. And it seems to me like you could just throw out the fact that Sam's a gardener, like it's just his occupation. It's there's nothing there. That's, but I don't know. It, it's interesting to me that that's just a piece that's kind of thrown in. Mm-hmm. And he could have been his shoe shiner. <laughs> this might be a decent transition into the next stage of the book, but there's, I think there's a reason that also Elrond was pretty fond of Sam as well. And yeah. it might be that green thumb that he had, the fact that, you know, the elves are so connected to nature more so than men and more necessarily than hobbits just because of their magical presence. But the idea that when Elrond was, for, was in his brain forming the fellowship to be mm-hmm. sent out, he was he automatically included Sam and not necessarily Marion Pippin. Obviously. Who was invited to a secret council. Yeah. Right. Who was not invited to a secret council. <laughs> right. Yes. Before we get to that, and I think we, we can get there pretty quickly, but I do want to talk about Tom Bombadil really quickly yeah. because mm-hmm. it's a huge part of just this first stage of the book. Um, I just want to ask you, when we were going through these chapters initially, something that I brought up just as an, an analogy, and I want to see how it sits with you. Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, to me, were almost like a father time and mother nature type of pairing. Mm-hmm. Um, both neutral parties where their responsibility isn't really to any particular um, party that's going on throughout Middle Earth. Their responsibility is just to their little patch of land. Um, but h- how does that how does that sit with you? Well, it's interesting. I've thought a lot about those two. And um, I sometimes I think about them. Uh, are, you're obviously your big sister's name for Claire of Assisi. And mm. I think of them as kind of like Francis and Claire. Mm, interesting. And um, they, who are great friends and uh, complimentary figures in some ways. But lately I've also been thinking about uh, Tom as Adam before the fall mm. and uh, Tom as. Um, I would assume that that means that doesn't mean that Goldberry is Eve. No, I'm not. It's interesting that the analogy could connect to her, but. I've just been thinking about uh, Tom is perfectly free. One of the things about Adam and Eve before the fall is they existed in perfect freedom. Hmm. And Tom has, the ring has no power over Tom. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely important that when he puts that ring on, he does not disappear. Right. Yeah. I I just think that's fascinating. And again, uh, Tolkien, we all know is he, he does not like allegory. So I'm not saying that he's saying this is Adam. But I think that that notion of perfect freedom is what's informing Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that Tom can wear the ring and it doesn't make him disappear. So just to your note on allegory, and then I want to get back to what you're saying about um, about Tom specifically. But 
that was one of his big issues with C.S. Lewis and his writing right. specifically in the Chronicles of Narnia is that it's like just straight up Aslan is Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you, yeah. you have to like, it, it's not hard to follow, but says, I'm correct in saying that. Yes. Yeah. He says allegory takes the freedom away from the reader, mm. which is, I think a great, you know, it's a great way to describe it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I always, I, 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 I like that idea of perfect freedom for that. Cause that kinda, that's a little different than my take from Tom, where I think it was more of a, I always read Tom as this um, kind of metaphor for when, cause Frodo freely took up the ring and took up the burden. And in this story of duty and what needs to be done, there's a lot of people both in middle earth and in the real world that are powerful and have the ability to help, but choose not to for mm-hmm. any number of reasons. And I think Tom Bombadil is a great example of someone who is so helpful when he is, but actively chooses when Frodo asks if he wants to come with him to say no. There's a lot of people that even though they do do the right thing and are good, pure people who don't mean any ill will to anyone, they choose not to help. And I think it's and and, and it's funny that the that Tolkien chooses imperfect beings to be the people that are willing to help. He chooses men. Elves obviously help, but and he chooses dwarves. He chooses all the creatures of Middle Earth that have the ability to be fallible by power and corruption. He doesn't choose these, at least necessarily, to be the main drivers of that duty. That's true. Well, and I think that follows really, I mean, I know what you're saying, but I I think even that follows really well from your kind of take on Tom as Adam. Mm -hmm. Because as we all know, or as we all believe, Adam in the Bible, we don't think of Adam as a literal person, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's, It's an idea anyway. So when you think about, when you think about the character of Adam and then this thing of original sin and the burden of everyone afterward who needs to carry it, I think that really follows is that Adam as this kind of metaphor in a sense of being infallible, right? The choice thing is kind of tough there because Mm -hmm. I don't know how that works into what I'm saying, but you can think of it almost as Tom being Adam, the ring being this original sin or this burden, and then everybody else being fallible afterward, having to deal with that. So it obviously doesn't follow kind of like word for word, mm-hmm. but I think it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I didn't think about it th- that way, reading through the first time. That's why we bring you on. All yeah. right. That's why you're here. Well, who here. knows if that's <laughs> correct at all? And the thing is, is of course, um, any one-to-one correlation, the author would be not happy. Right. You know, but mm-hmm. um, well, if Dr. K taught me anything, he'd be like, OK, that's an interesting point. Where are you seeing that in the text? Right. <laughs> I don't even have my book open right now. So, yeah, he wouldn't be very pleased with me right now. But but any, and the thing about about these stories is and I've talked about uh, our family, too, is a huge fan of of uh, of Harry Potter. And the, the thing about these great stories is they're opening up a treasure trove of wonderful ideas that are what make us human. Right. And. So you can be drawing on them and have them being different parts of your story without there always being this one-to-one correlation, but just that this is how, these are themes that we as humans are always grappling with, you know? Do you think it's easier to do that in a fantasy world where, like, I, it's, it's interesting where this story is meant to examine what it means to be human, like you're saying, but it also takes place in a world where there are many other things other than human beings. Mm-hmm. So it, I feel like it would just make it a, a lot easier to explore that from a literature perspective i always appreciate fantasy stories because the farther you get away from grounded reality the more liberties the reader is allowed to take with their interpretation of it Mm. like in most like realistic fiction um where it's just stories of individuals and peoples and families and relationships it's pretty 
cut and dry. And that's not a but an indictment of any of those stories. They all have their value. But fantasy allows so much more interpretation like what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. You can have your literature analysis in a book club, but with fantasy elements, just because they're so supernatural, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot more shades of gray and there's a bigger palette to paint with. It gives you the, ideas. It gives you the avail- like the option to ask yourself, like, what does it mean to be an orc? Like, right. What does an orc represent in this world? You don't get that in, you know, for whom the bell tolls sure or like tale of, or like a tale to t- two cities you like get that. you get it in just varied versions of human beings mm-hmm. obviously and so i think it takes a little bit more to read into maybe but um yeah that's that's interesting um any other notes on tom bombadil no not right now not right now okay well we can all cabin we he does have a sweet cabin that is something you mentioned it earlier but tolkien will just pull up from 40 feet out and just go crazy on describing the most perfect airbnb you've ever seen in your life speaking of perfect airbnbs the last homely house rated five stars for the last four thousand years that's right right oh one more thing about tom bombadil before we go on is that frodo dreams in that house yes very significantly and they all do except sam by the way right who's sleeping like a log yep but um I just think it's significant that he he ends up having a dream, spoiler alert, that will come back up at the very end of the story. Mm-hmm. And and he also, I love the moment where he realizes he saw Gandalf and what go, was going on with Gandalf mm-hmm. uh, when he was trapped at Orthanc. Yeah. So anyway, again, something cool about the house of Tom Bombadil. Okay, so let's um, go into Bree now. Hobbits make it out. I don't know that we need to talk about the Barrow Downs at all. No, we can skip the Barrow Downs. Yeah. But um, because it's more to inform the the power of Tom Bombadil and his resourcefulness. But um, right, Bree, we meet Aragorn, or as we know him now, Longshanks or mm-hmm. Strider, um, the poor innkeeper who's so forgetful, <laughs> so un- butterbur, yeah, so unhelpful. But Aragorn is extremely helpful to the hobbits once he reveals that he is not a friend and he's actually an agent of Gandalf, which is very good to hear. They escape. They're they we we want to bring up that uh, they do buy a sickly pony from. And a, a bad man in Bree named Bill, mm-hmm. name it Bill out of spite. And then it turns out that Bill the Pony is an extremely kind and loyal and resourceful beast. And um, at the very top of Weathertop, which is a ruined castle, ranger outpost on top of a hill, they are attacked by Ring Race. Frodo is stabbed, brought down. Uh, Glorfindel helps them on their escape. Um, and that's where we are. We wake up uh, with part two or book two mm-hmm. to Frodo being awake and Gandalf at his side. Um, Gandalf kind of breaks down where he was at the time or just kind of explains what happened. There's the chapter of many meetings where Frodo is like reintroduced to everyone. And then we meet a ton of really cool characters and not introduced yet. We get Gloin back from the Hobbit. That's yeah. a very fun um, bit. Mm-hmm. Gloin's son, Gimli. Uh, we meet um, Legolas, who is the son of, forgetting his name. The king of the King of the Merkwood The Landrill, yeah. The king of the Merkwood Elves. And then it's very funny because in that chapter, there's so many Hobbit callbacks. And it's a very fun bit of, uh, bit of, uh, coincidence that tolkien puts the son of gloin and the son of galandril who famously had a lot of beef in the hobbit and forces them together by happenstance to be part of the fellowship boromir son of the steward of gondor denethor um who's just tough to be around right away if we make plenty (laughs) of notes about that um obviously aragorn and this is kind of when aragorn's like really relevance like his real like powers kind of put on display and the hobbits are a little taken aback because when they found him he was obviously an impressive warrior and a great guide but he was dirty he'd been in the range for so long now he's cleaned up he's wearing elvish mail all of that and 
we go all the we have the secret council of elrond elrond breaks down an extremely detailed history of the ring what happened to it we learn that aragorn's ancestors are or was um isildur who famously chose not to destroy the ring and allowed it to fall into the wild unfortunately we learned that Gollum has escaped the Mirkwood elves in in comedic fashion <laughs> but regardless uh we also learned from Gandalf that the head of the council of the wise is Saruman and he has been corrupted by power and he's building an army for the enemy they're charged this is obviously the most abridged version I can possibly get I'm trying to get relevant details but then they go forth and are and then we have our nine in the fellowship. It's Mary, Pippin, Frodo, Sam, Gimli, Aragorn, Boromir, Gandalf, and Legolas. And they are going out into the woods, into the wilderness. They don't want to go into the mines of Moria, but weather forces them in there. They have to leave Bill the Pony for dead. Very sad. <laughs> uh, and then they go uh. into the mines of Moria. It's completely abandoned. There's no light. They eventually are attacked by orcs in the mountain. On their escape, it seems that they've woken up a Balrog. Defending them from the Balrog, Gandalf falls. As then, predicted by Aragorn. As predicted by Aragorn. <laughs> and they escape and they and Aragorn now leading the party takes them into the forest of Lothlorien as is their only way. And that's kind of the thematic third or second part of the book. Yeah. I always wondered why Aragorn knew that Moria was going to be a problem for Gandalf. I I don't feel like there's any hint other than he doesn't want to go in there in the beginning. Yep. And he says, beware yeah. to Gandalf. Specifically Gandalf. Yeah. 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 Uh, I always just because there are no clues again this allows you to kind of make up your own conclusions aragorn isn't just an extremely astute person who has who not only is guided by his intuition but does so because his intuition is mostly incredible he has a really good feeling about a lot of things he's mm-hmm. an extremely wise person you can attribute that to any number of reasons of root to his character but i think ranging along the borders of the misty mountains for so long and being just such a well-traveled person maybe he heard stories about what happens if anyone tries to go there he knows at the very minimum that the entire mountain is full of orcs. Mm-hmm. At the very least, that's a good reason not to go very deep into those hills. So it's odd though, because I feel like Gandalf would know most of that too. Well, Gandalf was like Gandalf was like I've been to Moria a thousand years ago. I definitely remember it. So I feel like Gandalf was more led astray by his own overconfidence of yeah. his ability to guide them through there. Because they get to the part where there's the three doored fork in their path, and he's just like, okay, yeah, you're right. I have no idea where to go. Maybe. Yeah. I, I also wonder if maybe Aragorn knew that the ultimate test in there was going to be supernatural mm. and the only person who could fight that battle would be Gandalf. Yeah, right. That would make sense. That's fair. I, I can, I agree if, with that. If yeah. he says, you know, if, if, uh, if the rubber meets the road, you're going to have to be the one to defend us. That right. would make a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in this section of the book, there's just a few things that I really like take away from it is one, we get another just kind of great moment where Frodo displays his courage again at yes. the council. He's just like, I don't even know where I'm going, mm-hmm. but I'll do it. So another family connection. I told you about your text about Lothlorien yeah. that I loved. I also got a letter from Claire once where she wrote that section on the entire back of the envelope, you know, ending with, I will take the ring. I do not know the way, you know, oh, and it's, it's such a Claire move. It, it, it's a Claire, <laughs> it's a Claire move to love that. And, yeah. and it, you know, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It is really nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's that. I mean, getting the whole introduction for the fellowship is obviously very important. Um, you mentioning getting an idea of Aragorn's lineage is super important going mm-hmm. forward. Um, I don't know that we really need to get into that right now. No, I just want to say That's one fine. thing, yeah. which is I think it's adorable that the person who's helping us know how important Aragorn is, is Bilbo. Yeah. Yeah. That Bilbo loves him. Mm-hmm. 
and the you know, Dunedain. Yeah. And he, he's like, who calls you Strider? You know, like <laughs> yeah. Strider is a very almost vulgar term. Right. Pejorative. Yeah. And it's, it, he's like, your name is much more important than that. Strider is because he moves so quickly in and out of town that he can't be trusted. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a vagabond almost. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. I think we get a, just a new kind of reverence for Eric, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Obviously the thing that I'm most curious about your take is the, Idea. This is a, kind of our first time, besides the ring race, that we get uh, orcs in this book. Um, I mean, they have a little fight outside the Misty Mountains with some like orcs and goblins and stuff. But we get more orcs inside the mountains and then the Balrog. I'm curious about how you feel Tolkien uses orcs and any evil being as kind of a as a literary device, if he does at all. Well. I'm going to admit that sometimes I just take things for granted and I don't think about them very much. The, the one thing I think about with orcs is, and it's fascinating because in that um, confrontation on Weathertop where there's the wargs mm-hmm. um, or on their way to Weathertop. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. no, it's, it's after. Cause they, yeah. they're, it's a whole fellowship. They're sitting outside. They'd already gone up the mountain. They yes. came down after weather and they're trying to decide whether or not to go through the mountain or go around like to around I, the bottom. The, the gap of Rohan. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And then they get attacked by wargs. Yeah. And it's fascinating because in the morning, they can't find any of those dead wolves. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them says, I knew they were a device of the enemy. And mm-hmm. you get the feeling that orcs are the same. And this is uh, another kind of interesting connection to Harry Potter, where when Voldemort is defeated, all of the, his little minions kind of just disappear. Do you re- I can't remember exactly how that works, but you it's get the feeling. Me, yeah. yeah. But you get the feeling that in the same way, these things are almost, um, you know, automated by the right. power of Sauron and yeah. that there really isn't much to them as individuals. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's fascinating and I think connected to that is how, how totally um, they're, they have no courage at all. You know, it doesn't take much to turn them aside. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, one really kind of brave move by one member of the company and they all flee. Right. So even, I mean, they're even scared by other more evil right. things mm-hmm. as we'll see. Yeah. So well, go ahead. Did you seem like you're about to say something? No, I just, you can bring it to like Tolkien's charitably, his distrust of machines and their just inability to show loyalty just mm-hmm. because they are whoever picks it up and is the user or the operator almost can be its master. Yeah. And if, if, if orcs are like able to disappear in it for the wargs, if they just kind of like go away afterwards, it kind of just sees like, what is, what is like a hammer on the ground? It's nothing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a tool of someone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a good, good way to put it. Right. Um, so the Balrog, um, it's uh, just the most evil thing besides Sauron that I think we encounter. I just want to just put on the record that bridge of Casa doom was probably my favorite chapter oh. of the book, just in terms of that, that confrontation on the bridge is one of the most intense things I've ever read in my hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the other the other part of that chapter I really liked is when they're reading out of the book mm-hmm. and they're reading just the recap of the dwarves. That is so, so intense. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's insane. Um, and it's crazy how it's like they are coming. We connect it out. Yep. And then they say that. They because, repeat it. Yeah. Yep. 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 So that whole chapter is super intense. Really cool. Besides besides it being cool, though, I don't know how much we really need to dissect about what's going on there other than Gandalf kind of taking a bullet for everyone mm-hmm. um and then importantly from there the leadership of the party then transfers from uh gandalf to aragorn moving forward mm-hmm. um but i don't know do you have anything else that you kind of are thinking about when you're reading those chapters or well um 
from a faith perspective, one of the things that's interesting for me is uh, we don't have an allegory here. So, but we have attributes of a savior, right? Right. And um, first we have Gandalf who is, as you said, going to take a bullet. Right. Right. And who knows what Gandalf, well, Gandalf basically beat that Balrog if it wasn't mm -hmm. for that for the whip, whip the coming around and grabbing him at the end. But it still is important that we have one of our, the three main characters in the story are Gandalf, Aragorn, and Frodo. Mm -hmm. And for me, they kind of take different aspects of Jesus and, and embody those. So Gandalf is the one who dies and rises again, right? Spoilers. Oh, sorry. Guys. <laughs> no, and, it's, it's um, totally fine. <laughs> and, and so, but then you kind of want, I think it's important to ask did Gandalf, I think it's important to know that there is a degree to which Gandalf is always a hopeful person, but courage isn't courage if you don't think the ultimate price is going to get paid. Right. Mm -hmm, and sure. so I just think that's fascinating. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great moment. I think yeah. he did know at least because he told Aragorn and Boromir to back off because they were ready to help him fight it. Yeah. And he was just like, no, it's my fight. Right. Oh, that is a great moment too. And it's, it's something for all of the things where Boromir, we know Aragorn's great. Right. Aragorn is the most valiant, brave, perfect thing that you can find mm -hmm. in this book. Boromir, while being definitely, you know, flawed mm -hmm. and having all of these crazy ideas for the ring for using it against the enemy, you get moments throughout, especially this section of the book, where he is just ride or die. He is. And it's it's the the most redeemable thing I think there is about Boromir is that he is just he is without question going to defend who's on his team. That's right. In any given situation. And you know, really, I think Boromir is the one of those people who shows us how serious the power of evil is. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, he succumbs to it in, you know, ultimately, but in, and then he is redeemed, which is lovely. But I just think he, I love the character of Boromir. I, I do too. I, I actually love Boromir. Um, and I love these moments, like you say, when he really shines because he is brave and he is going to put himself out there for others. And I think that Boromir is actually way more representative, representative of the general, like massive people yeah. than Aragorn is. There's, oh, 100%. There, there's, there's 10,000 Boromirs for every Aragorn in the world. Yeah. And, or more. Or more. Yeah. And, uh, and his, well, he doesn't have the best ideas as we'll see in the next phase of the book where Aragorn is just kind of like, actually, that's a bad idea. Um, but he also... He until the very end, he genuinely wants to use the ring for good purposes. He's so worried about Gondor. He's worried about Minas Tirith. He doesn't take anything that he does lightly. Right. Which and is a really admirable trait. He, it's a bad idea to use the ring as a weapon against Sauron for any number of reasons that are explained to him in detail. But he does it out of a genuine place of love. But it's also his fear of losing what he loves is what allows him to be so corrupted. Well, and I also think... Um, because he's such a great representative of humanity. You know, I yeah. had a conversation with a friend the other day where she, she was helping me sort through my motives on something, which is what you're getting at. Mm -hmm. And she called me out on, she said, basically, this is a good motive. This is a good motive. Make sure this other one isn't a motive. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was so discerning. Yep. And I think with Boromir, we also have ego. Mm -hmm. Remember oh, yeah. how he marches back and forth and he could be the leader of men. And that is we as humans have got to examine our motives, don't we? Yeah. So I think, again, he's wonderfully representative. And that's what I think I was going to say. I'm, I'm glad you said that because what I was going to say after you were, you just said is basically Boromir as a character in this book for me is just a constant kind of gut check for me 
where you're reading the book and the whole time for me, at least being just kind of an egocentric kind of person where, you know, I have certain kind of vanity about myself and things like that. I'm reading the book. And a lot of the times I want to think that I'm Aragorn. I want to think that I'm Frodo in certain moments. I want to think that I'm Gandalf. Really, you have to take a step back a lot of the time and think if I were in the situation, I would be Boromir. If I had the chance to defend my country and use this powerful thing whether or not I think it's going to corrupt me or not, I'm probably going to try to do that instead of doing the harder thing. Mm-hmm. It's such an interesting character to kind of like just ask the reader as you're going along, like, okay, just remember you're not, you aren't Aragorn. Like, don't, don't think that mm-hmm. like there is this other piece of the puzzle where it's like, no, like you aren't, you're, you're not infallible. You have well, flaws. And you know, people can get, can be critical of Aragorn because he's perfect. Right. And, and, he, and I just said that a little bit, there's some caveats there. Sure, Aragorn sure. has some moments of doubt, and, but he's pretty much perfect. But, and so people are like, I don't like that. He's perfect. No one's perfect. Um, but I like that we've been presented with some virtuous people to aspire to. Absolutely. I think that's awesome. I do too. And it's a book. Like if, <laughs> if, if, if people are really concerned about that, like, I, I don't know what to tell you, but like the, the fact of the matter is that Aragorn, you can read it as just another lesson mm-hmm. in the story. Like yep. that's all, that's all that it needs to be. Um, but that gets us to Lorien and that's, uh, as their company is running out of the, the mines of Moria, they eventually get to the forest of Lorien after some debate and much crying over Gandalf's death, but some debate about whether they should go into Lorien or make for this strait that would take them down to Gondor. Um, and, after spending some time in Lorien, they leave and they take the river path, which is going to eventually take them to kind of a fork in the river where they have to decide, are we going to go west to Gondor? Or are we going to go east to Mordor? What's the plan there? So, and then basically at one, at one point they beach their boats. They're trying to decide whether they want to take east or west route. Frodo goes up into the forest and starts to think about what he wants to do. Gets confronted by Boromir who tries to take the ring from him. Frodo kind of resolves that he needs to go alone to Mordor because he realizes the corruption that this ring can have over people. He runs back down to the beach as the rest of the party kind of comes up into the woods to try to look for him. And he sets off on a boat, but Sam turns around, comes back down to the boat and refuses to let Frodo go alone. And the book ends with that, with Frodo and Sam crossing the river to the east bank and making their way to Mordor. Um, But starting from the beginning, Lorien, we've touched on a bunch of times already. But it's worth getting into oh, because yeah. it is as close as you can get to heaven on earth, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I like that it actually starts with a lot of conflict in the fellowship because the elves are so prejudiced against dwarves that it forces Aragorn to like, because basically, yeah, like the elves are like, yeah, you're a dwarf. You're not allowed to look at our city. And he's like, well, I'm not being blindfolded. And Legolas is like, you should be blindfolded. Aragorn is like, you guys are literally children. Everyone's going to be blindfolded now. <laughs> no one gets their toy. Yeah, no one no one gets anything now. So, And because of that, they went through. But because of the weight of the fellowship and what they're doing, they're granted the ability to just be welcomed to the city, no caveats. And because of that, that allows Gimli to let go of some of his prejudice against the elves. And, it's, and that's even how it begins. It begins very rough and just in terms of very pettiness and it allows them once they release their pettiness to be hit with the grace of the moment yeah. where they are. Yeah. It's one of the great moments is when Galadriel speaks his language mm-hmm. to him and that kind of, that seals a deal. I mean, from that moment on, she's his lady, mm-hmm. you know, in that very kind of 
yeah. the evil sense of for whom are you fighting? And You know, that is a great way of putting it because I've been struggling this entire time to describe Gimli's love for Galadriel, mm-hmm. especially to anybody. Like I've been talking about when I'm reading a book, I can't help but talk about it with people. So, I mean, hence the reason we're doing this. But when I'm talking about like, oh, Gimli was just just taken with Galadriel and people you bring up the fact that Gimli's gift from Galadriel was her hair. Yes. And people are just kind of like, what? That's weird. And it's like, it's, no, you, you don't understand. Like it is the I'm, sweetest thing. Yeah. Kaylee, you're super right. It comes from a place of chivalry. Yeah. yeah. From, yeah. yeah. Like, and it, it's funny because it's one of those things that is, it's presumptuous. Yeah. So he, do you see what, you know what I'm saying? For yeah. him to ask for her hair mm-hmm. is on the one hand, not materialistic. I don't want any material reward. Right. But on the other hand, that is very presumptuous to have a part of her. Yeah. It's extremely intimate. Uh, it is. And, and that's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean this, these chapters, I think first and foremost, for me, at least it's just a way for Tolkien to kind of flex his muscles a little bit and just, just say like, this is just the most idyllic, like idyllic place you can ever be. And it brings so much emotion out of every character, whether good or bad, you know, brought upon by Galadriel or just the environment that they're in. And then Gimli and Legolas, I will say, it's really interesting that they, starting in this chapter, are just kind of inseparable. Mm-hmm. Um, Legolas takes Gimli everywhere he goes when they're in Lorien. And I don't know, there's just this interesting change from this kind of petty, you know, bickering between My the dad two. Hates your dad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. To being this really, really tight, strong friendship between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to ask you, I know that you have just a very strong love of Galadriel. Why is that? What, what is it that's like, what, what do people need to know about Galadriel? Well, there's some interesting things. Um, one is, you know, people can get kind of down on Tolkien about his, not poor treatment of women, but ignoring women. And yet Galadriel is more powerful than the Lord of this wood. You mm. know, he's kind of her consort, you know what right, I mean? Yeah. And so his, his power stems from her. Yeah. And you see that too, when they're talking and yeah. he's just like, Gimli, you like you little asshole, you did all this stuff. And Gladriel's like, no, no. Well, and also <laughs> down. that's right. And they'll ask them to predict something. And he says, I don't know. And then she goes on for a paragraph telling him what, you know, mm. what's going to happen. And, right. and, you know, it is from the lady that the whole land is held in sway. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that it's her, her power. It, it's just so important. Um, I don't know. Um, She's so graceful. I mean, she's I, like I said, I love that moment where she she looks at Gimli. She speaks his language and that's what causes their reconciliation. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. It's seamless power. It's, uh-huh. it's weird. It's it's like it's it's a gentle power. Yeah, it's not the traditional sense where it's been evil and kind of like uh, encroaching. It's very reserved. And the, the point is the whole point of Lothlorien is it's got its borders. It's got its limits. But you, you know what we were describing it as um, on our when we were talking about it originally was it's just almost this hyper empathy about her where her superpower to put it into pretty uh, layman's terms, terms, her superpower is just the ability to understand people on such an interior level that they almost are afraid of that power. Like she looks at the hobbit, she looks at Boromir and it, her gaze pierces their soul where they, they like they feel naked. They they, they feel naked. They feel like she's reading her thoughts, but all she's doing is just understanding them Mm -hmm. at their core. Yeah. Core essence, which is why Boromir doesn't want to go in there. And And, and why he is like upset with them being there after their encounter with her. She, he's distrustful of her. Why was she the way she is? Yeah. 
Um, I have a wonderful book I bought at uh, Loom's Theological Bookstore years ago called The The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. And he talks about um, magic, um, you know, which is part of the conversation that she has with Sam, elf magic, Sam. And you want to see elf magic? Yeah. (laughs) Follow my lead. It's right over here. (laughs) Yeah. And he talks about this really interesting idea of um, elf magic. And I love it. Its object is art, not power, subcreation, not domination. Uh, the elves are immortal, at least as far as this world goes. There's this wonderful line in this letter about kind of the word, I don't, did one of you use the word seamless? Yeah. Like there's this sense of their magic um, from from what they want and what happens. It's like this seamless yeah. thing. Yeah. And I like the, I like that, um, that kind of distinction that he makes between domination and subcreation too. Oh, yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's crucial. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And that even goes back to like what Tom Bombadil does. He yeah. doesn't dominate Hitland. He doesn't own it. He is almost so much a part of it that he's like, an, he, he's less a controller and more like an antibody. Well, in, and one of in, the, in the protective sense. Yeah. And one of the themes that's so important in this book is the idea of stewardship. Yeah. And yeah. he is a steward. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that continues throughout the rest mm-hmm. of the, the story too. Yeah. Yeah. I like that word stewardship. The one where it is, you're, it, you're a charge with this protection, not its ownership, right. its mastery. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, Lothlorien is, it's, it's tough for me to talk about because I honestly don't think I have the capacity like verbally mm-hmm. to actually do it any justice, um, which frustrates me I know. <laughs> immensely. Our last, our, our fifth child, I got really close to naming, giving her the middle name, Eleanor. Oh my god, Which is one of the flowers. And the only reason I didn't is because uh, it doesn't have the A in it, like the common Eleanor. Yep. And I thought, oh, heavens, I don't want her to have to spell it for people her whole life. But Walter Middle Name. I know. Cares? I kind of wish I would have now. Ugh, I wish you would have too. <laughs> or just named her Galadriel. Right. Who cares? <laughs> just fully, fully commit. Just a big middle finger to all the like conventional well, I actually, English names. I did name her Lucy, Lucy in honor of Lucy Pevensey's in oh, really? the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. I was always, I, I knew that. I knew that. I didn't I shouldn't say I, her dad and I did. I, I kind of thought it was more a St. Lucy. St. Lucy tie, is, but. it's great to have a patroness, but. Um, Lucy Pevensey. Yeah. There you go. Yes, sir. That's it. All right. Well then. I mean, the end of the book really is just deciding where to go. We call it Procrastination River. Yeah, mm-hmm. because it's just a long trek over a chapter and a half of thinking about what you need to do next. And then and realizing that you don't need to make the decision now. But then once you get to the part of the journey where it needs to happen, you haven't really been thinking about it. The yeah. night before that paper's due. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ironically, that's when I do my best work when I'm under crunch time. But that's neither here nor there. Um, and the only thing that I, I think we touched enough on Boromir and his flaws that really what we had said before is what just comes to light Mm -hmm. when he tries to take the ring from Frodo in the forest. Really, it's just like a clear display of this guy has his flaws and it's brought out with the corruption of the ring. Um, Besides that, the only thing that I think is really important in these final chapters is once again, Frodo deciding that he needs to do something he doesn't want to do, but he needs to do. And in addition, this time he says, I can't ask anybody else to go with me. So that's really huge for me, at least. The second part is that Sam is like, no, 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 I don't care what you're saying. I'm going with you. Um, it's it's those two things that I think are really just the important part of kind of cliffhanging this story at the very end. Um, yeah, I actually think it's a it's actually this is like the first time for me is when the ring corrupts Frodo is because one thing that was very honorable of him when he was in Rivendell was his ability to ask for help and his choosing of that. 
and the ring's kind of selfishness almost wants him to be destroyed in my mind because like if like because he's wearing it when he makes this decision it's like you have to do it by yourself Hmm. and he doesn't ask anyone and i feel like that was just another way for the ring to get back to its master because if frodo's by himself he's way more vulnerable he can't make it on his own that's That's kind of the point of the story is that you he wouldn't he wouldn't have and sam being so loyal is the thing that kind of counteracts that Mm -hmm. interesting which is just love yeah Mm -hmm. straight up unadulterated Mm -hmm. well um that brings us to the end of the book uh the only thing that i think we can do real real quickly we watch the movie um cody why is it the perfect movie it's the perfect movie because when you're so first of all translating this whole conversation has to be done with the initial caveat that when you take text and translate it to a completely different medium, mm-hmm. it's going to express itself and be received differently. Sure. That's just how it goes. And there are things in the movie that the book could never do and vice versa. Obviously, it's the perfect movie because it did its best. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all you can really ask for something so expansive uh, like The Lord of the Rings something that is so detail oriented and something that allows its readers to really take its way out. The movie version is literally Peter Jackson's envisioning of how he experienced the books. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all you can ask it to be. Yeah. And that's why it was perfect because it was one man who had the creative ability, the financial resources uh, to make it happen. He's someone who was put in a position of power to be able to tell the story in a visual sense. And because he was the only one who was probably willing to, and probably did so with the expressed like consent because he had to buy the rights from um, Tolkien's son mm-hmm. or at least license them. And I don't think he Tolkien's son would have allowed that to happen unless he saw what Peter Jackson was trying to do and said, this is at least a noble attempt mm-hmm. to visually interpret my father's work. Yeah. And so the fellowship is they obviously cut out a lot. Let's just put this way. It's actually a perfect movie because when you're making a movie, you want things to matter. There's a lot of times where you can. And if you watch the extended versions, there's the scenes that are just like. Did this move the story forward? Not necessarily in terms of raw plot momentum, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that they don't have value. Like the entire four stretch of their journey in the beginning of the book, the Tom Bombadil scenes, there's a clean break of Mm -hmm. when they escape the ring rates for the first time. Then they show up in Bree. There's four chapters and it's an actual like Peter Jackson just took a scalpel and just removed those elements. And it didn't necessarily damage the plot. There's, There's obviously times where they think about it in the book, but nothing changes in the plot. Right. And it a lot. And because of that, I'm not saying it's good or bad that he removed him. I personally would have liked to see Tom Bobadil in the movie, but I understand those choices. Yeah. And I think it was the perfect movie again, because Peter Jackson was the man who was willing to do it. He had the resources and he had the approval of those who held the rights to the story. And I think that's what makes it as yeah. good as it can be. And did it have flaws? Of course. But every visual interpretation is going to have, especially a story so beloved and mm-hmm. someone that were where people who know the story have pretty rock solid opinions on it. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have problems with someone else's interpretation in the same way that we would have comparing and contrasting arguments for how it made us feel. Right. And I, I would just do so devil's advocate. Yeah. First of all, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I would just add in a couple things that made the movie perfect for me is the casting. I know you aren't a super huge fan of Vigo Mortensen. As yeah, Aragorn. we have to hear. We have to get Aragorn. Into yeah. So for, can we hear just a little bit about that? Why? Well, just like I was saying earlier, I just feel like he didn't I need just on a very basic level I wished he was taller <laughs> uh, I just imagine Aragorn is just really tall okay and also just a little less even at Brie a little less uh kind of I don't know swashbuckling that's mm-hmm. that's what he, he seems more swashbuckling um and 
and this again gets back to my thing of, I think it's very tempting to make these characters more complicated than Tolkien made them. And um, I have a bigger beef with another character further on, as you know, Paul, but yep. um, I, I wanted Aragorn to seem more noble even from the beginning. Yeah. The, I will say this though. I don't know how familiar, familiar you are with this person's work, but just know that the, one of the alternatives to Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn was Nicolas Cage. So would have been a night. Oh my heavens. <laughs> that would have been a debacle. So just count yourself lucky that we got Vigo. True. <laughs> Nothing against Nicolas Cage. Cause I like him too, but he, no. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Oh my God. I actually like Vigo Mortensen as Aragorn a lot. And so with that being said, I think the casting in this movie was fantastic. I think everybody works in my opinion, just great. I, you can't, I can't imagine Gandalf being anyone other than Ian McKellen. It, like, nor I just just perfect across the board I yes. think Patrick Stewart could have done a good job but I like Ian McKellen's kind of like he his face is kind of like that yeah almost like description where he's like, like he did his eyebrows he right. did his eyebrows yeah. right he he's kind of got like that kind of like the bulbier nose yeah like his features a little bit more rounded a little bit more imperfect I kind of like that yeah so there's that the other thing is they incorporate so much direct text into the movie there's so many direct quotes throughout the whole thing that that's that's great if someone were to say that this movie should never have been made for any reason, this is this was a complete mistake. You should have just left the books. B, don't make the movie. I think the things that they would say is, how are you going to do this without Tom Bombadil? I hear what you're saying, but yeah, for no, I think people reading the books, they're like, this is such a huge part of the book to, to me. Mm-hmm. How are you going to do this without him? Two, I would say the movies missed huge on Lothlorien. Oh, they botched Lothlorien. They screwed it up entirely. It, it, watching it in the movie, it's like... It's creepy yeah. almost. It's like not it. They they missed. It, they completely missed on it. They they, they would have needed to add an extra hour of screen time to do it justice. It would have yeah. been, it would have been a four hour movie, right? Which is what it was in the extended edition. But yeah. So those two reasons, I would say. Also, the one thing that I really really didn't enjoy in the movies is Frodo is never depicted as being as brave as he is in the book. True. The, I mean, you still get the moments where he's like, I need to do this. I'm going to go and do that. Fine. But there's little things in the book that just kind of cement that character, like him yelling Shire and running at the orc mm-hmm. and stabbing it. And I felt like watching the movie the other night, there were too many times where Frodo is being pinned and is just acting completely defenseless when in the books, while he is pretty I mean, he's not going to stand up to a ring wraith, but in the movies, he just like falls backward and gets stabbed. Like, no, he takes a hack at one of them right. in the book. Like it's so that bugged me. Frodo's character in the movies just kind of. I, I think I all the hobbits it. are a little, a little too comedic. You know, they're going for the comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In P- the movie. Pippin and Mary for sure. Yeah. Sam, I think is the best out of all of them. Yeah. Although they get Sam really wrong towards the end. Um, of the next couple of right. movies in we'll, this one. Yeah. We'll, we'll cross Maddeningly. that bridge. We'll, we'll cross that bridge. We'll okay. There, yeah. So that's my, that would be my very short. I argument. Think they nailed Boromir. I think I love Sean the Bean. Bo- yes. Is, Sean Bean's great. He is perfect. Yeah. Gandalf is perfect. Um, can yeah. I ask your opinion of the ending in the movie where it basically imports what Peter Jackson imagines to be the beginning of two towers, the death of Boromir, right. His redemption, making that a part of the fellowship as opposed to, yeah, I I've thought about that. I I thought it worked. Yeah, as um, a as a, cinem- as a purely like cinematic, yeah, like bookend to use a bit, to and use and a also a beautiful interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. I yeah, and that we'll, is something that we'll I think there. that's why I think another reason that this is a perfect movie. The one thing that this movie I always have felt does better than the book somehow 
is the addition at the end of Aragorn and Boromir and their embrace at the end as Boromir's dying. You don't get that in the books. Oh, I disagree. What do you mean? I, I think one of the reasons I love it is I feel it's such a great interpretation of the book and it's spot on. No, no, no. I'm saying, but at the end of fellowship, we don't get it at the end of oh, fellowship. Oh, you mean you think it would the, be better the, the, at the end of the, the book. The splicing of the beginning and the end of two towers and the yeah. end of fellowship. Not yeah. even necessarily. The, in, in two towers though, Aragorn finds Boromir dead. No. Oh, no, no. Are you sure? I'm a hundred percent sure. It's one of my favorite scenes. Okay. I need to reread it then. I just read it a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what I was missing. Um, Okay, well, then in that case, I need to reread again. Fine. Um, but the, the that scene, I think, is is gorgeous. Oh, it is. And the battle, I like it. It's fun. It's fun. It's it's action. I like it. But um, yeah, I think it's a good end to the movie. Me too. Okay, mom. Um, closing thoughts. Ooh, I, I, I want one thing before. Yeah. Get. So hypothetical, Tom Bombadil, he's in the movie. We decided. Oh, yeah. We want to run by this casting choice for you. Ooh. For Tom Bombadil, because he would have been alive at the time. Robin Williams. Wow. Oh my. Imagine he, he's a, singing over the hills. He's a little goofy, but he's got that sturdy frame and he oh. has the ability to hit you with emotion. I'm yeah, just it, imagining Robin Williams like combine the good got a, he can grow a beard. Yeah. Combine like Robin Williams, Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poet Society with yeah. just a, like a drop of the genie. Yeah, just a little goofiness. Yeah. Awesome choice. I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. It, it would have been right after Goodwill Hunting too when they started filming this. So. Yeah. And he's uh, like you're talking about his stature, because Tom Bombadale is kind of He's chunky. Big, he's bigger than a hobbit, but not as tall as men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that would be cool. Uh, last thoughts, just the end of fellowship. I'll never forget the first time I, I closed the book and I was just, I was devastated that it was over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, what? They're just on this river. I was really upset. So, I mean, Tolkien had me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many times did you say you've read all of them? Uh, I think I'm on 12. 12 times. Oh, mm-hmm. I thought it was more than that. Yeah. I'd start, I think I completed it the first time in 04 and I read it straight every year. I would start it the day after Christmas. And uh, so like 04 to 14, 15. And then I did have a couple of years there where I didn't read it annually. So that's you why you didn't need the escape. I, I didn't, or I couldn't take it one or the other. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank on. you for having me. It was I, very fun. I would love to do this again at the end of two towers and hopefully again at the end of return of the King. I would love to join you. Oh my gosh. Excellent. I'm pumped. Thank we got to get reading though. Yeah, we do. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been another edition of Biblia Takes. Thank you everybody for tuning in. See you next time. Bye.